0: The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at uh1.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes.
1: Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt.
0: Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare.
1: in mm-hmm. It is a glorious day, just as you prayed it would be. The sun is streaming in through the window. And what good fortune too, your clothes are laid out just as you remember they were. No nightmares about not being ready on time, on sleeping in, or of awful weather can dampen the greatness of this day. It is the 22nd of June, 1897. And from your small but quality lodging in central London, you can already hear the city begin to whir into life, despite the fact that the sun has only risen but a few minutes before. You stand up and walk to your window, gazing outside at the varied sights. Carts drag produce along the streets. Vessels in the distance carry goods into the docks. Loud, excited voices punctuate the significance of this day. A diamond jubilee, how wonderful it is to be born in this time when all you desire is at your feet. The most powerful and splendid empire in the known world, and you are its loyal subject. As though in a dream world you throw on your carefully selected clothes and walk past your kitchen, almost unconsciously do you make the decision to get breakfast outside instead from one of the many vendors available. Better to really take in the atmosphere of the day that way. Perhaps you'll even be met with a discount from a jovial merchant. Having rounded up the possessions you'll need for this day of days, you unlock your front door and push it open, stepping outside into the streets. Instead of the familiar surroundings you expect, though, you're stunned by a bright light and you end up somewhere else entirely. There is no mistaking it. This is a gallery of what? You cannot be sure, though. Small paintings and works hang on the walls at regular intervals, and the furniture is obviously of great quality, while one of those newfangled gramophones sit in the corner, blaring out some kind of song. Being a citizen of the Empire, you recognise the melting pot of various cultural strands that have come together in this huge room. You scan the interior of the room expecting to receive some kind of explanation for what's going on, and your eyes fix on a well-dressed figure. He gestures to you and you cautiously venture towards him. Once face to face with this man, you see that his occupation, if that could be the right word in this situation, is the curator of this gallery. He appears relaxed, confident in fact, but this is getting a bit much. You don't want to be late for the events of this day, you don't want to miss your Great Sovereign's celebrations. So you tell him directly, in a voice that conveys much confusion at the same time. Please, sir, I must be going, for I have pressing business to attend to. The curator at this holds up a calming hand and motions for you to follow him. Into the corner of the gallery you go, until you reach a staircase blanketed in royal colours and smelling of a far-off bazaar in an eastern land. Standing alongside this curator, together you both climb the staircase. Once at the top of the stairs, the curator points to a wall. The wall's length dominates the upstairs portion of this gallery, and upon this wall hangs a huge, overwhelming painting, The painting seems, upon closer inspection, somehow familiar, even though you know full well that you've never set foot in this strange place. Somehow to you, this painting encapsulates the British Empire. It can be whatever image you wish, India, piles of money, royalty, monarchy, naval power. Only the British painting hangs here on the wall because, as the curator explains, Only the British Empire can claim to be the first power among nations in this world. The painting is almost hypnotising in its brilliance, though you've never had much of a taste for fine art. Viewed in all of its splendour, it is impossible to imagine this gallery ever needing to take on other works or accepting other paintings with their own idiosyncrasies and qualities and glories. It is as if the British painting has always been here, will always be here. And it positively shines with glory. There is something about this painting that really draws you in and makes you feel attached to its contents, to its promises, to its story. It speaks of a worldwide power of never-ending legacies and of boundless wealth. If it could speak, it would declare its own glory. If it could sing, then God himself would revel in the lyrics. It reassures you that it will always cover this wall, because nothing else could possibly replace it. You note that you have in fact been standing here for some time, and you begin to realise that, on the hour, the curator comes to check on the painting. To you, it seems as though the curator is protecting the painting, protecting this representation of British resplendence from harm. Yet you come to realise that that is not the case. you begin to realise that the curator of this gallery is not on Britain's side. He is merely acting, as he informs you, within the limits of his job description. Therefore, the curator takes no prisoners and displays no bias. He obeys the guidebook of history. He is merely an instrument of fate and will take down the British painting once it becomes sufficiently tarnished. These are the terrifying, unnerving facts of his position that he informs you of. And what is more, it is one of his great passions in life. He brings you to his storeroom around the back of the gallery, and there he shows you older paintings replete with cracks, smears, and dirt. These are the paintings of great powers gone by. The Mongols, Persians, Chinese, Greeks, Romans, all powers that the British like to compare their painting to. Understanding his point, that not all empires can live forever, you return to the wall on which the reassuring British painting is hung, and are soon accompanied by the curator at your side. You turn to him while gesturing to the painting and ask, somewhat defiantly, But is this not the most incredible sight you've ever seen? The curator smiles a strange smile, it's as though he knows something you don't, truly, he replies. The British painting is a magnificent and deserving one, but all paintings must eventually come off the wall. Fuzzled at this reply, the curator leads you to the exit of the gallery. You push open the doors and step into the light outside. The date is the 22nd of June 1897, and you're in London, the grand imperial capital of the British Empire. You almost cry with happiness. You made it here after all. The streets are crowded, noisy, filled with onlookers and patriotic songs. This is the day that Britain commemorates Queen Victoria and her 60 years of rule, and to celebrate, every corner of the empire has contributed something to the procession. Imagine the 50,000 soldiers, the thousands of Union Jacks fluttering in the breeze and from the hands of the eager spectators, the glimpses you're able to catch of foreign dignitaries as well as some royals from closer to home. As Victoria appears further up the street, a roar of adulation begins, unaffected by the length of the spectacle or by the perfect heat of this June summer's day. This, as any Imperial Administrator, official, or politician would feel, was the British Empire embodied within a day. Though nothing could truly do justice to the incredible strength, the awesome wealth, and the unfathomable reach of its power, this Diamond Jubilee procession comes as close as anything ever could. Pausing for a moment, you take in the glorious sights and sounds of the Empire on the streets of its capital your heart swells with pride. Such a celebration denotes the fact that this has been a British century, a Victorian era, a period of immense expansion, innovation, wealth and good fortune, the likes of which Britons had never known before, and of which no other nation on earth could boast. How could the curator have gotten it so wrong? You wonder, mostly in relief. You rub your eyes attempting to convince yourself that you had in fact been daydreaming, and had never visited that strange gallery with that mysterious man. Yet, the words of the curator still resonate with you, to the extent that, you feel, you have to prove to yourself that he was not correct in his assertions. Such reassurance is not hard to come by on this day, after all, since the kind of atmosphere and event which you now find yourself in is not the behaviour of an empire on its last legs, as the curator's vaguely ominous reply seemed to suggest. Just as you believed before, so you believe now, that the British Empire is one that will last forever. Or, if not forever, then at least it will last enough time to raise the inferior peoples of the world up to the British level, to prepare them for self-government and the responsibility of ruling their own people, which they evidently were not yet ready for. At least it would last long enough for the white dominions of the world, the children of the British home islands, to grow up and rule themselves independently, though still ready at a moment's notice, to return or aid their motherland. At least, God would not permit its fall in an ignominious way, having ensured its glorious rise. Streamers and trumpets denote that the procession is coming to an end, as the glorious carriage containing Queen Victoria nears closer to St. Paul's Cathedral. The regal woman enters into the huge building's interior. A senior dignitary spots you at the front of the crowd, gesturing you to follow the royal procession into the cathedral. You walk up the bright white steps, polished and swept countless times for this very occasion and now gleaming in the sun. You push open a side entrance door, designed for individuals of such status as yourself. Once again, though, you're hit with a bright light. You arrive at that same gallery, with the same aura of destiny that hangs over it. You understand where you are almost at once, it was not a dream after all. Though you are disappointed in this fact, you feel determined to seek out the curator, determined to prove a point that he was wrong, that the British Empire's glorious painting will by no means come off the wall any time soon or perhaps ever. You find him on the ground floor doing the rounds, and as he looks up at you, you scold him for his lack of faith. "'I have seen the Empire in all of its glory,' you claim, puffing out your chest. "'It is not going anywhere, and that painting is certainly not coming off the wall.' Inquisitively, he looks at you, somewhat sympathetic, as though you have not been privy to some bad news. You feel your stomach lurch, and you turn to the staircase where he had once brought you. Quickly do you walk towards these stairs. The carpet that covers them is now different. It smells of an industrial factory, and it is then that you notice that most of the other decor that once existed in this gallery has also changed. You try to ignore these facts. Instead, you're focused on finding the painting, which had once so captivated you. You race upstairs to the part of the gallery where that glorious painting hung on the wall. It had resembled all that Britain stood for, all that it had gained and all that it had believed possible in 1897. You don't quite know what you expect to see on this wall now. Perhaps other paintings alongside the British one, perhaps a host of glories depicting a range of victories, achieved by ally and foe alike. Arriving at the top of the stairs, frantically, you scan the wall for the painting you once knew, for the world you recognise. Many other works are in fact present on the wall, where only the British work once stood. But there is a notable omission from this wall, The British painting was once here, but now it is gone. In its place are mysterious other paintings, depicting unfamiliar empires and boasting alien achievements. Desperate for information, you look to the curator of the gallery, who is now standing behind you. Just as before, he directs you to the storeroom around the back of the gallery, where the paintings of all fallen empires are relegated. Alongside the Mongols, the Persians, the Chinese, the Greeks, and the Romans from before, the storeroom is notably now more crowded, with paintings of the German Empire, the Ottoman, the Russian, the French, the Spanish, Portuguese, Dutch, Belgian, and right there to the side, just there, covered over with a red tarpaulin, is the painting that had once encapsulated the British Empire, too. The painting is cracked, it is smeared with dirt, and is a shadow of its once triumphant brilliance. You are deeply shocked. No empires last forever, that is true and evident by the other paintings that surround you in this storeroom of dead empires, but how had Britain been so totally toppled from its position to lose all semblance of power that it had in 1897? Deeply shocked you stagger back to the curator and begin to fire questions at him, how had it happened? What had set the empire on her downward spiral, when and how had these other empires also died, etc. Without giving much away, or indeed anything at all, the curator ignores your questions, instead leading you back to the door. Almost unconsciously, you push the gallery door back open, and walk outside, only to find yourself back on the streets of London once again. Though it isn't 1897 anymore. If the curator had sought to prove to you how broken and dead the British Empire had become, then this seems a strange place to put you. It becomes difficult to attain details, but gradually you grasp that you are present in London for another Diamond Jubilee, and upon asking a startled bystander, who had regarded your question with an almost hysterical laughter, you gathered that this was the celebration of the 60 year anniversary of Queen Elizabeth II the great-great-granddaughter of Victoria. Initially such news is reassuring, the empire is not a forgotten aspect of Britain's history. So if it is not a forgotten aspect, then perhaps it is still in place. Perhaps the curator had gotten it all wrong and perhaps his so-called guidelines were no more accurate than those at your time, that had predicted the great growth of America or the dangers posed by Russia or the sleeping giant of China. Before long, though, your impression begins to change. The language, for one, is far less imperial, and on closer inspection, you recoil in horror. Just what has happened to the Union Jack? You wonder, virtually out loud, as a few puzzled individuals turn to stare at you. Picking up what is billed as a guide for the day's events, for a whole pound no less, the shock of the expense almost causes you to argue with the vendor, that attempts to sell it, only for him to claim that it was only a pound, as well as some other colourful language you have not had the displeasure of hearing, but for some very few occasions before, and you begin to try to piece together what is going on. The date is the 2nd of June, 2012. Almost 115 years to the day that you awoke and sped outside with such a patriotic excitement. Although the city is the same, the streets are notably less crowded, the songs to be sung are performed by much fewer revellers, and the actual songs they sing contain gentler themes and a far less imperial tone. Just what on earth happened? On consulting your outrageously expensive pamphlet, which you now cling tightly to, you gain an appreciation for the monarch that is soon to present herself to the public. Pictures side by side of her coronation day exactly 60 years before accompany more modern photos of her. The quality and technology of the photographs astound you, as do the figure they depict. She seems pleasant, almost grandmotherly in appearance, with far less airs and graces than the Queen you once revered. In photos her hair is white, her face smiling, but it is the other contents of the pamphlet that concern you. Taking a seat in familiar but also alien surroundings, you note with some worry that the queen is no longer referred to as an empress of India. Upon further inspection of the pamphlet, you investigate the list of individuals that have sent representatives to be present for the day's events. Countries you do not recognize, draw your eye, as well as terms such as commonwealth and issues like decolonization and independence What of the white dominions? Now they are encapsulated in this partnership of peoples across the world. Britain, so the pamphlet explains, does not possess any kind of lordship over these countries. Instead, she interacts with them as an equal, so that mutually beneficial relationships can be cultivated and preserved for further generations. Throwing down your pamphlet in disgust, you reach what can only be described as an empire shop. Statuettes of your true queen, Victoria, are for sale. Again the prices are exorbitant, and you cannot understand how any citizen could possess so much money. Reaching into your pockets you pull out a ten pound note and stare at it in wonder. Ten whole pounds? You exclaim to the bemusement of those around you. The shopkeeper. A dirty-faced man with bright eyes and a strange accent asks if you're actually going to purchase anything. You ask with a certain apprehension if he has any maps of the current world in his possession. He nods cautiously and points to the wall opposite, where a number of maps hang. Below them are a few fold-out map sets wrapped in plastic with various names, with one set in particular entitled maps of the British Empire in various stages. You cannot help but feel morbidly curious. How far-reaching does the Empire stand now, despite your pamphlet's liberal languages? How many enemies can Britain really be said to have? A Diamond Jubilee is an event of Imperial glory, so surely, you persuade yourself, there is much to be celebrated at this time. You pay the eager shopkeeper and leave the premises, taking a seat on a street bench. You unwrap and open out the map set and begin to flick through it, arriving on a middle page with the title, The Empire at its Greatest Extent. The date reads 1920s 1930s and you squeal with delight. Here is proof that the Empire grew even further upon Victoria's Diamond Jubilee. Here is proof that the curator was surely incorrect. You turn to the next page, and a different story greets you. After the Second World War is the title at the top of the page, and this ominous title aside, what really shocks you is the retreat of the empire across the world. The decades that follow the 1950s, 60s, and 70s all tell similar stories of withdrawal. Not even India or the Cape to Cairo control of Africa is preserved. You can't help but shed numerous tears. After reaching such a peak, how had the Empire so plummeted to the point that it barely resembled its original form? The final page is merely a picture of the home islands, and at this stage you notice that not even the whole of Ireland remains coloured in red, while only a few islands dotted around the various seas remain British territories. As this map emphasises though, Even these islands, minuscule in size and of scant strategic or military importance, have received numerous chances to decide on their own respective futures as either a part of or independent from the British administration. Britain, as the map depressingly concludes, is now an integral partner within the European Union, a community of European nations that cooperate for commercial, social, and humanitarian purposes, and have long since abandoned their imperial rivalries? The curator was correct then, you note know with resignation, but how? How would this transformation from all-conquering imperial superpower to free-spirited gentle island and cog in the European machine come about? You scan the streets of London for answers, and your eyes rest on a sign that directs citizens to the British Library. If any place could answer your questions, surely the resources within that building could. You follow its directions for a few minutes, walking through streets containing dashes of familiarity despite their modern features and strange noises, until eventually you reach a building familiar in architecture, but hung with various banners. This is the British Library. It must be... The closer you get to its doors, the more certain you become that this place will provide you with true answers. Your heart beating, your hands sweating, you push into the building, only to be greeted once again by a bright, blinding light. By the time you get your bearings, you note to your immense dismay where you are. Once again, you are in the gallery you began your strange journey in. This time, though, you're seated within a separate room, and the curator is sitting opposite you, with an expectant look on his face. Behind him is a wall that stretches along the length of the room. It contains a row of paintings of a various nature. And to your surprise, the row begins with the painting you had once found so glorious, so promising and so representative of everything the great British Empire had to offer the world. After some disorientation, you grasp by yourself what the wall represents. It appears to be some sort of timeline for the British Empire, since from your seat you can see that the final painting is one of Queen Elizabeth II's Diamond Jubilee that you had recently been at. Turning your gaze back to the curator, you feel confident enough in your position to pose the question that has been causing you such concern. Where did it all go wrong? You ask the curator. At this question, the curator stands up and walks over to the wall and its row of paintings. You stand out of your seat and follow him over, and begin to take in all that these works of art depict. They begin with an imperial glory not surpassed by any other in history. This you are familiar with. In your efforts to not become too overwhelmed by the spectacle of these paintings, you try to scan past them as quickly as possible, but the curator forces you to focus on each one. He insists upon it. Alas, though it is painful for you, your inherent curiosity gets the better of you, and you begin to scan the series of paintings closely enough to notice a pattern. As the paintings continue, they tell a story which is less familiar than what you feel you know of alliances made isolation ended and a new age of competition beginning they tell stories of domestic strife of foreign intrigue of concerns for empire and naval rivalry the paintings depict international summits wherein great statesmen once sought to solve the niggling problems of the day but they also depict a buildup of arms the clear splitting of europe into two distinct allied camps then, in one of the most notable, emotionally charged paintings, a great and terrible cataclysm is depicted. This, as the curator explains to you, is the moment when the British Empire truly began its decline. Therefore, to you, it now is the most important painting. You were utterly struck by its contents, but above all, it is the depiction of the horrendous losses that shock you the men within the painting that you see torn apart by explosive shells, punctured by barbed wire and overcome by bullets. Then there is the senseless tragedy of it all. You see mustachioed aristocrats ordering men to their deaths while the flower of Britain's Empire is put under severe strain and withers under the weight of all that its officials expect of it. To see this alien scene before your eyes is deeply unsettling and disturbing but also somehow fascinating. The British world from that point onwards, the curator explains, was never the same after that. You cannot help but wonder to yourself, if it requires such a high price to fight and win this war as this painting depicts, if it was a conflict that would so place in jeopardy the British system, then why did Britain's statesmen seek to fight it in the first place? The events that are depicted in these paintings, what bearing did they have on the British decision to sacrifice their empire on the Altar of History and cast aside their glorious prestige, virtues and principles in the process? Did they not understand that they would be abandoning their mission in the world, that other less worthy powers would, between them, take up the British mantle and seek to claim their mastery? Were there no ill omens that could have been taken in and learned from before this war broke out? Walking back over to your seat, questions such as these pulsating within you, you turn your attention to the curator. You cannot help but feel as though you met him before, as though you recognize his face or, at the very least, his voice from somewhere. You decide to take the plunge and solve these mysteries. By asking the curator directly yourself, since, if he understands the course of the British Empire's history, surely he will be in a position to explain why it acted in the way that it did. Sitting up as if eager to answer, the curator's eyes light up. As though you've finally asked the right question all along, he lays before you a theoretical interpretation of the stages through which the Empire journeyed from its fall since 1897. Beginning on the morning you awoke, the Victorian era at its height and the day of the Queen's Diamond Jubilee, the curator notes that the British Empire's fall can be split into three rough stages. The first he calls the Peak, which he claims began at Queen Victoria's Diamond Jubilee and ended with the outbreak of the Cataclysm of War, seen in one of the most memorable paintings on that wall. The second he calls Stagnation, which the curator informs you stretched from the end of this cataclysm of war to the beginning of another. And third, the decline and fall, which stretched from the end of that second war to the final decades of the 20th century. You nod your head in understanding. Such an interpretation of events makes sense to you. But still you ask, what of the most important stages of this process? What of the era in which the empire was at its peak? How do the events within that stage shape the later decision to enter the Cataclysm of War in 1914, which is the date the curator has given you for the beginning of that original war? Once again, a similarly passionate reaction to the one you saw before becomes etched on the curator's face. The curator asks, Are you inquiring about the period from 1897 to 1914? Yes you reply, with a level of apprehension. "'Why?' he replies expectantly. "'Because,' you retort. "'That is clearly the time frame in which Britain's course of history is most affected. "'Why, in the subsequent stages, "'she is merely reacting to the events that occurred within it.' "'Ah, yes!' the curator jumps from his chair in excitement, "'using his hands for effect. "'This is precisely the point!' It is during this era that the history of the British Empire, and with it the world, hangs most in the balance. And it is within that time frame that the most fundamentally important events occur. The curator sits back down and calms himself. By now you've nearly exhausted all your patience. In that case... You begin. Would you be willing to tell me that story? Would you be willing to enlighten me on the events... The issues, the characters, the problems, victories, scandals, diplomacy, conflicts and compromises that constituted such a significant stage in Britain's history? With this, the curator stands up and begins to pace up and down the room, as if mulling over your request, his previously calm nature consumed by a clear and evident excitement. I am quite a busy man, the curator explains. I have a lot of other work that requires my attention, and what you're asking will not be either a short story or one I can tell without going into great detail. It is not a responsibility I will take lightly, and I must know that you are willing and ready to hear it all." You stand up, as if to reassure the curator, who you now feel strangely indebted to. "'I promise,' you begin, I really do want to hear this tale, I I, am frankly desperate to." The Curator then stands still and looks at you quizzically. Are you telling me that you want to hear the story, the whole story, of why Britain goes to war? At this stage, you can barely contain your sense of anticipation. Yes! You exclaim, in a kind of whisper that is so encouraging and so affirming. The Curator believes you. The Curator sits down opposite you. And gestures to the wall of paintings that constitute the story of Britain's imperial decline and fall. Very well, the curator inhales. I am willing to explain all of this to you. I am willing to tell you the whole story. The curator clears his throat to begin, when suddenly you are hit by a flash of recognition yet again. You cannot help yourself. You do know this man. You know the curator. You interrupt the Curator just as he is about to begin. Please, sir, I feel I must know you. I know your name and your face from somewhere. What is your name? At this, the Curator pauses, understandably irritated at being interrupted in his storytelling, having just been told, by you no less, to begin. He sits back in his chair and chews his lip in hesitation. As he does so, you feel a burning desire to solve this new mystery to know the name of this man who, really, has organized all of these strange occurrences in this spectacular gallery for a purpose only he knows. So you ask again, What is your name? Your real name? The curator squirms. My name? He begins, only to stop himself. My name is... again, he stops himself, and stands up, facing away from you and towards the wall that so vividly depicts the course of the British Empire. You stand up to and walk towards him, slowly, unable to control the curiosity that has gotten you this far.
0: Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
1: The curator then turns slowly around, looking at you with distinctively shining eyes and states with an emphatic, determined sense of purpose, my name is Zach Twomley. I am the voluntary curator the creator of this gallery, this living gallery of the past and present, a concoction of incredible stories, peoples, tragedies, and victories which, taken together, constitute the various episodes you see depicted in this place. It is thus my job, my pleasure, my passion to tend to my responsibilities here and take you through the great stories of history. So, if you'll only sit back down and listen closely... My dear, inquisitive visitor, then I will tell you another great story. This will be the story of why Britain goes to war.